Welcome to the Told Me podcast to learn and develop for medical educators from the Frank H. Netter, MD School of Medicine. This podcast is for busy medical school faculty who want to expand their knowledge and teaching. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Coplett, and I will bring you interviews with experts in medical education, fellow faculty, and medical students to discuss the issues most relevant to today's medical educators. Today, we are talking about how to most effectively teach clinical skills what we need to think about for the early medical learner and later in the clerkships. We'll also talk about what's changed in clinical skills education over the years, including some newer topics that medical students are learning now. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Listy Thomas to the podcast. Dr. Thomas is an emergency room physician, the assistant dean for simulation, and director of the clinical arts and sciences course at Netter, which is our clinical skills course. She's an expert in clinical skills education, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Listy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for having me. So our faculty listeners are undoubtedly experts in clinical skills. And one of the hardest things to do as a teacher is to take a complex skill that we do automatically, whether it's a cognitive or a manual skill, and break it into it's understandable steps for the very novice learner. So, Listy, what do you think is the most important thing for faculty know who are te- to teach clinical skills to early learners, so the first and second year medical students? Yeah, that's a great question, and uh, really one that I had to um, think deeply about and grapple with when I first started teaching clinical skills, because it really is exactly what you said, breaking down the very complex ways in which we interact in the healthcare environment um, and ways we assess our patients and breaking those down into the very tiny um, steps. And that uh, takes a lot of effort and practice on the part of a seasoned clinician because, you know, we've now processed all of these steps into one easy workflow that we don't even need to think about, right? That systems one type thinking would just kind of go through our motions. You know, you might say it's intuitive now at this point that you know how to do a physical exam, you know how to get the, the full spectrum of concerns in an HPI. But um, breaking those skills down into just the basics has uh, is the skill that a clinician needs to be able to teach in our, our um, early learners uh, clinical skills course. And so we start just from the beginning, walking into a room, what does it look like? What are the observational skills that you need, the visual thinking strategies that you need to be, be assessing this, the person, the patient that's in front of you, but also being mindful of the whole environment. Um, so we walk our students through the handshake or in this post-COVID world, uh, the non-handshake and what that looks like in terms of introduction. How, what are the things that you say? What are the things that the patient needs to hear you say? an introduction, your name, what you're doing there, how long you'll be there, what you'll do afterwards, you know, all of those basic steps that I think we take for granted um, when we we do this day in and day out. Uh, But the students, we found that if you structure it in this very specific format in the context of patient-centered interviewing, um, they get so much value out of it. And then they're able to do that very... um, formulaically, but also very naturally, too, as they develop the basic skills. And so we even in teaching empathy skills, 
We give them a structure, a format, things that you can say, the micro skills around empathy building with your patient. And then they take that and make it their own. And so it's been fascinating to see how, you know, the the words that we say, the the different ways that we interact in that space between you and the patient can make such a big difference for the learner in the room. And then they take those and and I think once we have this structure for them in first and second year of medical school that we're able to do in our course. They take that into third and fourth year. And I have seen that they do retain so much of it, right? Even though they might not be seeing it practiced in third and fourth year as as formulaically, as systematically. Um, they are, I think our students are really strong clinically because of some of this foundational knowledge that they have, foundational communication skills around what do you say when you walk in? What do you say when you're leaving the room? You know, what does the patient need to know that they're waiting for next, right? So that they're not getting frustrated in the room or in the waiting room wondering what's the next step or frustrated when they go home and don't know who to call or how to make the next appointment. Um, so all of those things we really um, talk to the students a lot about in our course and have them practice through simulations. That makes so much sense to me that... Um the early learner, it, it's not only okay for them to be formulaic, it's good for them at the novice stage, right? Because they, they, it takes quite a long time to be able to build to the point where you're discriminating as to, you know, which piece you're keeping and which piece you're throwing away. So at the beginning, they just need to know all of the pieces and building blocks, um, before you take any of them away. Um, so that makes so much sense to me. So I think that's a great takeaway. And I'm reminded by a colleague of mine who uh, I did faculty development with early on. He was so brilliant. And he ran a session, and I think it was for a clinical skills course, in fact. Um, and he was trying to teach that concept of breaking down expert skill into the simplest of um, steps. And so what he did is he had everybody pair up into people who could whistle and people who couldn't whistle. And the person who could whistle had to teach the person who couldn't whistle. And it was such a great exercise because you start to whistle and you realize, what am I doing? I don't even know what I'm doing with my mouth right now to make myself whistle, right? Because you just do it. And it's so similar to expert skills in any field, including our clinical skills. No, it's so true, Lisa. I think, you know, even when we think about uh, how we learned it, we learned it almost the other way around where we had to learn the technical skills, the history taking, the physical exam you know, the specific seven parameters of an HPI and how to do a family history. And then we learned all the steps of the physical exam. And then we were kind of just sent out there to figure out the communication pieces, the the non-technical skills, the situational awareness, the um, assertiveness, uh, giving feedback, all of those pieces we kind of had to like learn on the way. And in this course and in many clinical skills courses around the country, we build in those communication skills first or even thread it into our curriculum so that as you're learning about um, cancers in the foundational block, you're learning about delivering that bad news of a new cancer diagnosis, you know, and the, and the, the frameworks that you can apply to deliver bad news. So it isn't such a scary thing when you have to do it. 
um, in in the clerkships or when you watch someone else do it uh, in your clerkship before you move on to residency. I love that they're getting frameworks for every piece of their early clinical skills, for all of it. It's not just the technical exam skills, but it's all these other pieces that are often so much harder too. And it also the fact that they're getting it legitimizes the importance of it. And we know as practicing clinicians that it's that those pieces are so important. Yeah, it's really why I love it because I think it there's so much there's so much evidence out there about how it's important to frame a lot of these conversations, the linguistics, the communication skills. There's PhDs on this work, right? And people have published really good stuff on it. And when in medicine we get to integrate some of those other knowledge areas into our curriculum, I think it's just it's so wonderful. It really builds on you know, the things that the Department of Social Work is doing, right, and social work across the country is doing in a lot of these fields around communication, especially in healthcare, um, and and many other disciplines as well. And so it's, it's a very interdisciplinary course in that way, because we build on so much knowledge, not just from medicine, but from all of the other areas uh, where the things that we do in medicine really matter. And it really is about the words that we say. So, and just to and the other thing that you that I thought about as we were talking about early versus more mature clinical learners is I thought about how it's such a fallacy that it's easier to teach the most junior learners, right? It's it's often harder because of this. So I just think that's such a great example. So so now I want to think about teaching in the clerkships. Students have gone through their first two years. Um, their learning curves are incredibly steep between day one of medical school and the day they start their third year clerkships in terms of their clinical skills. So what would you say is most important for faculty to know who are teaching clinical skills in the third and fourth year? So most important to know in terms of how can they um, help students to better learn these skills at that stage? Yeah, that's uh, that's also an area that we really think about a lot in terms of that vertical integration. How do we translate what they're learning in first and second year around the history, the physical exam? Those things are very clear, right? You can go in and take a history and a physical on a patient in your clerkships. The communication skills, they that will be maybe potentially an area that uh, we could always grow in in terms of integrating within to the clerkships. Um, but even in the, it's even again in those micro skills, those little pieces of, of um, teaching, right? In terms of like, you know, where do you put the stethoscope to hear this murmur best? Or how does this sound that I heard translate to this disease that I'm seeing, right? In terms of the physical exam micro skills, but the, um, you know, the the communication skills are the ones that I think can always be reinforced. So for example, I had um, a, what turned out to be a, a mega code cardiac arrest last night and, you know, it took um, an hour and a half of all of our time to try to save this life. And in the end, we were not successful. But being able to have the learner with me as we delivered that bad news to the family member, as we you know, debriefed with the group, with my team that had been working so hard afterwards, like all of those, those non-cognitive things, they really, I think, help us not burn out in our day-to-day operations, right? Because we are seeing so many 
so many things and doing so many things and, and our patients are all being affected and our families are being affected by these things. And I think just taking that extra minute to say, I have a learner here. I need to, I need to role model these skills so that they can do it better next time. Right. Um, and I think that's a big portion of where third and fourth year, um, you know, can really be, um, a, a place where students grow in those fields. So that's really helpful. Um, thank you. So the other thing I want to talk about um, that I see a lot uh, for myself um, on the outside looking into your course is there's definitely been an evolution of clinical skills training over the years. We're all, you're already touching on it. Um, we've already talked about providing early frameworks around communication skills and other issues. So if you were to think about sort of the major changes that have happened, you know, what's changed since we were medical students in terms of clinical skills training? Oh, sure. Um, so I do think the the biggest change is really this focus on um, advanced communication skills. I think clinical reasoning is also another area where I think we've had our students demonstrate that they can do and grow in uh, preclinically, preclerkship. Um, you know, it's hard for a first-year student to really know all the nuances of, um, you know, uh, hyperbilirubinemia, perhaps, and how it presents in a patient and to ask those questions. If someone's there with right upper quadrant pain, are they going to really remember to ask about the the dark um, urine and the light-colored stools, will that come naturally, right? Whereas where the third and fourth-year student, that would be very much more natural. Um, but with the um, newer things that we see our students needing, you know, it really is around the concepts of social justice, health equity. Um, the students want more about sexual gender minority issues, uh, want more about, you know, responding to microaggressions and bias and how we do that in the clinical realm, right? Especially in terms of the hierarchy. Uh, I think building in things around just basic communication concepts around patient safety is important. Uh, we have so much more growth to do in terms of telemedicine, as we've all learned over mm -hmm. the last year, and simulation around telehealth is important. I think clinical skills courses are going to really wind up being a place where some of these things are housed. Um, and then one of my areas of interest is really around trauma-informed care and how that uh, is, a, is a wonderful framework that we can use in so many different aspects of our day-to-day -day, um, interactions. So not just trauma-informed care for the patient, but trauma-informed medical education, trauma-informed clinical skills, um, all of these are pieces that we touch upon and try to really be mindful of because nothing can be trauma-informed unless the organization is trauma-informed. And so uh, in the terms of the course, we are really mindful of that. Yeah, there, there's so many so many content areas that you just brought up that I thought, oh my gosh, that's that's so essential. And, and how in the world do you p add all of that into teaching you know, first you have to, you also have to teach those technical pieces of history taking and physical exam. And so all that we learned, plus all of these other really important topics that we were either one, not learning or learning via the hidden curriculum and potentially not, not learning it appropriately too. Um, 
so let's, but let's talk about this piece that you really do have some expertise here. And so I want to get into it. um, And it's something that I've learned from you. And that is this concept of teaching about trauma-informed care. I know that it is a recommendation by national organizations and agencies that that medical students be taught about trauma-informed care. Um, so can you tell us what what is it um, and what's important for, for faculty to know about this? Yeah, sure. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to do so. Um, as an emergency medicine physician, you know, we see plenty of trauma on a regular basis. And I hadn't really, you know, we see the effects of trauma on the physical state. And often, you know, we're able to manage that or not manage that and the patients move on. But the long lasting psychological effects of that trauma um, is is often lost on us in medicine, I feel. And, you know, I think a lot of this work um, really has come forward in the context of um, intimate partner violence and the traumas that uh, the survivors of intimate partner violence take on. And uh, one of the um, the sem- seminal studies on this was the ACEs study that was done through Kaiser Permanente. And in that study, uh, Dr. Folletti, who was really working with uh, patients around obesity, realized that no matter what was what all the interventions that they could do, these patients were not really able to uh, lose their weight, were not able to hold on to that weight loss, despite like bariatric intervention and all of that. And so uh, they did a study of like 17,000 members within the Kaiser Permanente system, asking about traumatic childhood experiences, adverse childhood experiences, the ACEs, and uh, realizing through that work that things like domestic violence in the house, substance abuse in, you know, or as a child watching a parent or a loved one um, deal with uh, intimate partner violence or substance abuse or mental illness. And all of these things would actually um, uh, increase the risk of disease that the child would take on as an adult. And so having more, four or more ACEs uh, increased the risk of depression by four and a half, five, per, uh, five times, right? Uh, that of someone who didn't have any adverse childhood experiences, increased uh, risk of drug abuse, increased risk of like chronic disease, like COPD, and even um, uh, cancers, right? And so they realize that there really is this health, dose-dependent health um, outcome based on how much trauma you're exposed to as a child. And from that work, this this um, whole framework of trauma-informed care has really come out because when we think about trauma, it isn't just that individual ta- trauma or the interpersonal trauma between the parent and the child or between the parent and a loved one. Um, it's also like our collective trauma as a society. And we're seeing so much of that in terms of gun violence and um, domestic terrorism, international terrorism, and also, of course, the constant threat of trauma from uh, the the historical structural racism uh, and all the the cultural um, co- like um, cultural issues that have resulted. Right, the social and, and behavioral determinants of health, and all of these things are all traumas in this lens of trauma informed care. It really is about the event that um, has occurred, but also the 
the experiences of that event and the effects of those experiences on the individual and on our society. And Listy, did I, 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 the number that sticks in my head, I think is 90%, something like 90% of people have experienced some type of trauma in their lifetime. Is that, did, yes. am I getting that right? So yes, that's that's exactly right. Around ninety percent, um, eighty to ninety percent, according to multiple studies of our U.S. population, has been exposed to at least one ACE in their childhood, um, one trauma. And of course, the numbers are the higher you go, the more risk of disease you have too. But I'm also very mindful that many of our learners, our medical students, have been exposed to ACEs too prior to matriculation, and so. Uh, there's a natural tendency for people who have um, who are drawn to helping professions to have had exposures themselves. And so, you know, when we are teaching in medical education, we have to really be mindful of that because one of the things of the trauma-informed framework is to really mitigate the uh, risk of re-traumatization. And when we think about medical school, it's already a very traumatic environment, right? We don't have a lot of control, a lot of agency. We're kind of going through the motions of all of our um, steps going through the exams. And um, this one exam might set the fate of our whole future. And so there's so many pieces already that um, the, the structural aspects of medical education don't account for uh, a trauma-free environment, but so all the more important that our individual interactions with our learners really be um, mindful of that and help to mitigate any trauma by, you know, in our, in our feedback giving, in our, how we approach um, the organizational structure of the classes and, and where they're supposed to be at what time and how often, and even just even on like what we've been doing over the last year with teaching on Zoom, um, thinking about like what videos need to be on, can everyone have a standardized background and things like that. It would really um, have been shown to help mitigate some of that re-traumatization. So, so can you tell us just very briefly, you know, what is the framework with patients and how, and, and do you modify that to apply it to education or is it ex exactly is the corollary um, exactly the same? Yeah, I, I really love this framework of trauma-informed care that was um, set forward by SAMHSA, our uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services uh, organization within the government. And it really talks about six guiding principles. And this, the, this is the framework for trauma-informed care. One is safety. Two is trustworthiness and transparency. Three is peer support. Four is collaboration and mutuality. Five, being empowerment of voice and choice. And then six, being cultural, historical, and gender issues. And so when we teach trauma-informed clinical skills, it really is one about building that psychological safety, making sure that you have, you know, closed doors, a safe environment for the, uh, the patient to be able to speak about their, their experiences in, um, making sure that there are no other individuals that need to be in the space if they're, they shouldn't be, and if they do need someone else in the space that they're there with them, having chaperones, you know, all of those pieces kind of build into the safety concept. Trustworthiness and transparency, that would really be about like, you know, being honest and being trustworthy and giving clear expectations. And again, you can see how these 
are naturally applicable in medical education yeah, also, right? Setting, setting that safe environment and having those senses of like, these, this is what you are expected to learn. And this is in the time period that you're expected to learn. And we're going to be very transparent with you in what our expectations are and trustworthy, right? Where I'm not going to say one thing to you and then put something else on your evaluation. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be very honest and, and give you the feedback that you need in, in a safe way, right? And then, of course, the concept of peer support um, really is really more for, I think, uh, you know, the peer support that um, patients can find in groups who have similar experiences of what they're going through. Um, and in substance abuse uh, counseling groups come to mind, but there are so many other peer support groups. But also, we need peer support groups for our our healthcare workers, right? And so, building peer support within the framework of medicine in the patient's care environment, but also in the medical education environment. And I think our school does that really nicely. We have multiple peer support groups and options for our students. And then there's the concept of collaboration and mutuality. In patient care, that includes having patients sit on hospital committees and having uh, that patient voice within any like organizational uh, new ad- advances that you're making. And in medical education, that means having students involved on in our committees, helping make decisions in terms of uh, curriculum and any policy changes as well, which we do. Giving empowerment to students and patients uh, is really important, giving them opportunities for that. In clinical skills education, that might mean, you know, having um, the the patient do parts of the exam themselves. Like maybe they don't want you sticking a swab in their throat. Maybe they can do that themselves or helping with the pelvic exam. You know, there are so many opportunities where you can re-traumatize someone who's been through significant trauma, especially if it's sexual trauma. And so um, being mindful of that and giving patients the opportunity, we don't have to do this today. We can do it another day. Um, and the same would go for medical education in terms of uh, empowerment, right? And there are there are so many ways we can do that. You don't need to do everything in the structured way that you do it. If it doesn't fit for that specific learner at that specific time, giving opportunities for makeup would be one of those ways. And then the last thing would be the cultural, historical, and gender issues. And <clears throat> I think that is important in the the patient care arena so much so. And and patients will often tell you like. This has happened to me before. This happened to my mother. This happened the last time my family member came to this hospital. They're coming in with a perspective and with um, a, a risk for trauma. And so we need to be mindful of that. But in terms of medical education, that would be the time where you know that there was a major protest about um, uh, racial inequity or pro- police brutality. Taking a minute to mention that in the classroom, taking a minute to acknowledge it to not be silent about it, all of those ways we really, or even even putting your your pronouns, she, her, he, he um, him, after your name on the Zoom screen, right? Those all are signs to our learners that we are acknowledging there is there is um, a different opinion or a different perspective. In that history, can be to play, right? yeah. So I'm sorry, interrupted you. But what I was going to say is, I just think it's I'm just so taken by how incredible and how important it is that our students are learning this. So I think it's just I'm so glad they're learning this um, in their undergraduate medical education. And so obviously, though, even though the framework makes sense and it's so intuitive, it does take some learning 
to start to to really understand it and then and then implement it. So if you know our listeners want to to learn more, are there a couple of good resources that you might recommend? Sure. Um, SAMHSA is really the the place to go. The S A M H S A dot gov really has. Um, all the information that you would ever want to learn more about trauma-informed approaches. Uh, And even they talk about trauma-informed workplaces and ways that you can use this trauma-informed framework in so many different other venues. Um, The recent uh, May 2021 journal of academic medicine had a nice article on trauma-informed medical education as well. And I think that's a a great framework to use, not just for student wellness and student affairs, but in all of our interactions with learners as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So I want to come back to more general clinical skills training. And, you know, I think about you know, when you teach, when you teach anything, right, it, it really keeps you on your toes. So, uh, you must hear this from faculty that teaching clinical skills, whether it's to a first year or later, uh, that it, that it really keeps, it keeps you on your own learning edge. And, uh, and it must be incredible to see students transition from novices to clinicians. But I was wondering if you could just talk for a second about what you gain as a physician by teaching clinical skills to medical students or what you hear your faculty talk about, about what are the benefits of, of teaching this and how does it inspire them? Yeah, thank you. It's, I would say it's been the honor and privilege of my lifetime to be able to teach clinical skills because I think it's so important um, in so many ways uh, to, to have our students so early on in their formation, the professional identity formation, to be able to build some of these things into who they are and how they think. Um, and I know many of my faculty in our course, our preceptors, repeatedly say how it's made them better physicians too. And I, I've definitely noticed that too. We didn't have this educational content when we were in medical school. We learned from our really great preceptors. And you you might think of people along the way who demonstrated great empathy, who just got to the heart of why the patient was there and really could, you know, make a great diagnosis with very little effort, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but those things weren't really taught. And we we now think about and teach the process of clinical reasoning and diagnostic decision making in a very structured way and thinking about how you would add pieces of evidence to that um, to come up with a new diagnosis or add to your differential uh, in in such a, a much more robust way than I think that we learned it, the metacognitive pieces of like, how do you make that decision, right? And um, I think all of those things have helped us as preceptors and, and teachers in the course apply that because we now have the, the experience of doing that with all the all the expertise that we have in terms of the basic foundational knowledge that they, the students don't have yet. And we now apply it to our, our patient care and in our interactions with each other, our colleagues. And repeatedly I've had uh, preceptors tell me that it's been a a great experience for them and actually helps them want to, you know, 
keep working, right? Because and not yeah. and not burn out and retire early because I think we we find so much joy in in the work that we do now because of the things that we're teaching. I think that is a great way to end. Uh, and Listy, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. It was such an interesting conversation and I appreciate it as always learning from you today. Thank you, Lisa. I love this podcast and I wish you all the best. Thank you. I'm Lisa Coplet. Thanks for listening. This podcast wraps up our first season of Told Me. Season two will kick off in the fall, and I look forward to bringing you more great topics and conversations with experts and colleagues. I would like to thank the people who contributed to this show, Katie Lyons, our fabulous producer, and David DeRoche, our program director. For more information on other faculty development opportunities at Netter, email katie.lyons at qu.edu. For more information on all of Quinnipiac's podcasts, visit qu.edu slash podcast. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram and at QU Podcasts. 